and welcome to Consent Friend, brought to you by Saras Radio. I'm your host, Zainab Siddiqui, and today I'll be guiding you through this episode titled, Where Can I Go? In this week's episode, we will be taking you through the resources available to those of you who have experienced sexual violence, want to support a loved one, or maybe even at the risk of perpetrating sexual violence yourselves. To do this, we are going to share with you an interview with Susanna Muntazuddin, SOAS Student Union academic and welfare advisor about her role supporting students, what advice she would give to any member of the SOAS community experiencing sexual violence, and what changes she would like to see take place to make the university a safer place. And in the second half of the podcast, we will hear from voices around the university explaining what resources are available to those of you listening from outside of SOAS. Before we go into the interview with Susanna, we would first like to issue a trigger warning. Trigger warnings are used as a signpost when content may be triggering or upsetting for people so they can decide if they want to keep listening or just feel prepared for what will be discussed. This week, we will be talking about how people find support in and outside university. It will not be explicit, but may upset those who have had negative experiences seeking support. Susanna Mumtazuddin works here at SOAS as Student Union's academic and welfare advisor. She is an unsung hero of the SU, helping students facing difficulties get support and advocacy they need. Through her times at the SU, she has also been able to see changing patterns in students' need for and access to services that are so vital for making the university a safe place for staff and students alike. One of our contributors and consent workshop facilitator met with her to talk about her role, what she has learned about student support, and how she thinks we can make the university a safer place. I'm Indigo. I was a consent facilitator in this uh, last year of consent workshops, uh, and I'm going to be hosting this interview today. Um, The episode is on the topic of what can I do? So giving advice and signposting support for survivors of sexual violence. We're here today with someone who does so much work behind the scenes here at SOAS, Susanna. So can you introduce yourself and explain your role within the SU? Sure. Hi. Yeah, my name is Susanna. Uh, So I work for the SU. I'm the academic and welfare advisor. My role is to support students. So students obviously go through a lot of issues when when they're studying. So there's the academic side. um, So that's related to things like mitigating circumstances, play cases, anything related to um, their their studies, basically, anything affecting them. Um, then you've got the welfare side, which is more, let's say, personal issues that might be affecting them during their studies. So, you know, it's quite a broad range of things. Uh, if I can just give some examples, like, you know, if they're having housing related issues, physical health related issues, a lot of mature students need further support because, you know, they are taking care of sort of maybe a vulnerable relative or children and obviously sexual harassment and assault is unfortunately one of the things that I do have to support students with so. Can I just ask is it more emotional or practical support that you give? Both (laughs) yeah it's both so I mean I don't think you can just give practical support to a student who you know has faced these sort of you know unfortunate experiences you have to provide a warm therapeutic environment for them so that they feel comfortable with talking about their trauma but not only that I think you know you do have to then also offer the practical uh, support as well so um, for me I'm um, the way I approach it is firstly ask the student what they want and I mean usually you know in the five years I've been here it's it 
the style I, I like to work with is providing advocacy, advice or representation. But it really depends on what the student wants and what they are comfortable with. Just to give the listeners an idea of the scale of your work, how many cases are you dealing with in like a given year, for example? Yeah, so I started working here in 2013. I mean, the whole reason they introduced this role was because... There was a lot of cases and, you know, the general manager was dealing with a lot of them. And I, but I don't think it's in his um, criteria to, to be doing this sort of advocacy advice support. So they wanted to get someone who's got the experience. But also there is a sense of accountability when you have a role put in place where, you know, um, there is a professional setting. Um, obviously you're working with vulnerable people, there can be a lot of complications. And so, you know, I think in the past when the sabbatical officers have taken this role, there isn't a continuity. So they introduced my role. My caseload has increased. Like, so in terms of case, case wise, that first year I had around three to 400. That's now gone up to 700 cases a year. It is quite a lot. I guess one of the things I've noticed though is the turnover of cases. So the case, the caseload, each case, they don't really take as long as say when I used to do social work you know the cases the length of cases it would take months whereas so students they don't take that long so it's quite easy to manage. What do you get the most cases of? Do you get a lot of cases of sexual mm. violence and like helping with that or is yeah. that quite rare? I, I think it's quite so the highest rate like in terms of welfare and student needs it's mental health related issues that covers a lot of the things as well but it is usually mental health related issues um i think a lot of young students struggle even actually mature students they struggle with acknowledging their mental health because of the stigma that we have in you know society so what happens is you know they stay silent they don't seek help and everything piles up and then, you know, the last minute when they've got to, you know, hand in their essays and things like this, they, they come and see us, which, you know, it's great that they've done it. But I think that's the highest case, is, uh, case rate, mental health rate issues. I mean, in terms of sexual assault and harassment, case wise, it has been quite low. Per year, it's been around 60 compared to other. I mean, it's still a lot. I mean, I can give you some statistics. So the consent workshops have been really good because, you know, in a way it's it's creating an awareness for these students and a lot of the students have faced. Yeah, and we bring up your, like, photo and all your okay. details. So yeah. I think people are, yeah. like, would kind of signpost <laughs> them good. to you, which is good, Sure, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, these workshops are amazing, but also they can be triggering, you know. So a lot of students have come to see me in the past four years. They've come to see me sort of you know, a month after the workshops have completed. So um, in 2015, I had nine students, 2016, 21 students, 2017, 37. But this year, it's been interesting. I've only had four. But I think that's got to do with the fact that we ha now have a counsellor who um, provides workshops. Her name's Silke Greer. So I work quite closely with her. You know, she's a specialist in sort of working with, you know, people who have been victims of child abuse and sexual trauma. So I think what's happened is a lot of the students have been referred to her, you know, which is a good thing. What sort of advice or support can you give to members of the SARS community who have experienced sexual assault or harassment? Yeah, I think it's a really sensitive and difficult issue for students who have faced 
those experiences and I think I can I can provide a safe space for them where they firstly will be believed you know and secondly feel comfortable to express how they feel I mean you know I think I've said this before the most important thing is that they call the shots that is what I always say when I work with students you know I can help them explore options so in the past I've supported students to contact the police and you know they've got a specialist unit where they focus on such cases but I also understand that a lot of students might not want to report their experiences to the police and so there are alternatives like you know you've got um, advocates that specialise in sexual violence, supporting people who've, you know, face sexual violence. Um, you've got Havens, you've got, um, you know, Solace Women's Aid, uh, Women and Girls Network. There's there's a lot of sort of, you know, outreach organisations where they, they specialise and they can advocate and further explore, you know, the kind of options that the student may want, which I think is really important. So, yeah, it's really about it's really about making that student feel comfortable. And there is, you know, I have a strict confidentiality policy where nothing will be breached, you know, unless unless they say I can. You think that's really important. I think a lot of students just who have faced such issues are at a crisis point where they might have been rejected, you know, or not believed. I think that's a, from my experience, that's been a big thing. And so providing that sort of safe space, providing that warm, friendly environment, I think is really important. Um, so what kind of services are available within the university for survivors of sexual violence? Within the university or Students' Union? Both, if both. you know the answer to both. Yeah, both. Okay, so Students' Union, I mean, we're so small, we're very small. There is just myself, uh, really, like, you know, as I've said, I can, depending on what the student wants, I can support them to proceed with, you know, whether they want to go to the police, whether they want some legal advice, whether they need like specialist counselling, things like that. Um, It's again, it's about advocacy, referring advocacy and representation should they need it. You know, there's been times where I've taken students to Havens. Just explain what Havens are. Yeah, Havens are, you know, a safe space for women and girls who have had experiences of sexual assault or violence. Usually it's women who have been experiencing it in their present life rather than those who've had trauma in the past. So they may be at risk of harm, further harm as well. Yeah, so they, you know, there's Havens across... The, the UK. With the school, you know, I understand they have counsellors. I know there is a strain on advice and wellbeing. I think that they are taking quite, they're taking on a lot of cases and they may struggle with the amount of cases. I understand there are waiting lists, you know, for students. There isn't anything specialist, however, for students who may have faced, you know, sexual harassment, rape, things like this. They, there isn't someone who specialises um, in it like an advocate, which I'm in two minds about. I think, yes, I mean, that it would be great to have someone who might have the training, but then, but then again, you know, so I'm training to be a counsellor myself at the moment. And my, you know, from, from, from that experience, a lot of them will have the experience to work with such students. But this this is a interesting debate, you know, about getting someone separately. I can I can see the sort of pros to that as well. 
So are you kind of saying like it would be good if there was a specialist, but the counsellors there already probably are quite capable at dealing with this? I'd like to think so, because, you know, you know, therapy is it's all about working with sort of vulnerable, vulnerable people and, and, and forming forming those connections, regardless of the experience that that client has had. Yeah. Right. So. So, yeah, so for the last three years, SOAS have uh, made consent training, either consent workshops or survivor-only workshops mandatory for all incoming students. How do you feel about this, the workshops making them mandatory? I think it's a good thing. I think it's, um, gosh, you know, I, I just think of the cases I've worked on and even my own experience when I was when I was young that was a long time ago <laughs> when I was like 18 and just witnessing you know and hearing about case incidents that have happened and how I just I just didn't have a voice at that time I, I didn't feel that I could um, assert myself and feel confident in myself about you know with with talking about these things and I think some guidance, you know, through such workshops is a great thing. I think if I if I if I got that workshop when I was eighteen, perhaps I would have looked at things in a completely different way. And I think it's really good. I mean, I was concerned in terms of perhaps some students it might be really triggering. So it, you know, some students may have had some terrible, you know, child childhood trauma or something like this, and it's mandatory for them to for them to do it. But I think if if we are able to you know, provide that right kind of emotional support for all the students who go on the workshops or if there's another form of like communication where, you know, if it is too traumatic for them. Yeah, yeah. that's why I think the survivor workshops have been so successful exactly. and yeah. positive this yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. Because it's been an avenue for those people who can't really access, Yeah, like, struggle to access the general Absolutely. Workshop. I mean, I was, I was talking to Silka about this and I think... It's great that these workshops are in place, you know, for students who've potentially experienced uh, sexual violence, um, assault, um, childhood abuse, things like this. But also it's it's really good for students who may know someone. This is something I think we need to um, focus on as well. You know, students who have family or friends who've also been victims of rape or things like this. And, you know, it, it it's a lot. For someone who, let's say, doesn't have the skill sets to take on, it's a lot for them to take on and they need care too. It's really important. So how do you take care of yourself given the emotional demand of your work? That's a really good question. In my previous roles, I've I've always done social work. I've worked frontline. You know, it's really important to be able to have supervision, regular supervisions with um, management where you can reflect and talk about your cases. I mean, you don't need to necessarily disclose all the information, but you could talk about the cases and talk about how you feel because it's, it's you know, it'd be absurd to think that I don't get emotional about the cases. I don't get attached and I don't stop thinking about the students I work with when I finish at SOAS. Yeah, I feel like I have quite a good relationship. I've brought, you know, the experiences that I've had from my previous jobs to here. So I meet with my manager who is really supportive. And I'm able to sort of speak, speak to him and um, get things off my chest, get, you know, get emotional, talk about, talk about the cases, get some practical advice as well. Yeah. And self-care is very important. It's very, very important. You know, this is why we have professional boundaries as well. You know, 
office space, certain times of meetings, keeping that professional relationship with students as well. So you don't get sucked into something that can become unhealthy. What has your time as a caseworker taught you about the insufficiencies in the services that we have for survivors here at SOAS and elsewhere? For me, this is for me, you know, I have to realise the limitations of what the Students' Union can provide students. I think there are a lot of cases where you know, students have felt frustrated that there isn't anything further that the Students' Union can do. I think that is kind of like reflective of the school more so, though, with their policy. I think they their approach, I mean, they have policies in place, but there is clearly an issue because students have expressed that they feel let down by the school. And I guess the questions that need to be discussed is about, you know, how... How prepared are the school to get involved? How, how, how much do they want to get involved in such cases? And it's really complicated. Like, for example, you know, if you have a student who's been assaulted by another student, what will the school do, firstly, to protect that student? And what can they do against the alleged perpetrator? I think the Account First campaign has really highlighted it's even if there is policies in place, it's incredibly confusing and difficult to navigate the processes. Yeah. And I mean, from my experience, I've had a lot of students who've come to see me about that. You know, for me, it is frustrating because I do feel like we we hit a glass, like a seat, like that's it. You know, I don't, you know, it's really frustrating. We have to take it outside of SOAS for something to happen, which, you know, I I believe in. But also I recognise that it's a massive stress for the student. They're going through trauma as it is. And Mm. they're in an institution where they don't feel safe and contained. And, you know, these are the questions that the school needs to answer. Um, I I appreciate that they are complicated, but they do have a responsibility towards these students. And especially if there are perpetrators in school, you know, just they need to have some sort of answers. I wish I knew, you know, to be honest. Do you have any ideas about like things you'd like to see put in place at SOAS, which would uh, make it a safer place in terms of sexual violence? Yeah, um, I mean, I think the Students' Union can definitely do more. From our side, we we can do more within our spaces like the bar and JCR. I think we need to have more stricter policies and procedures around banning certain students if they're harassing. You know, they're, you know we, we do realise there is, there's been a lack of continuity in our policies and procedures. And I think, you know, we want to take it more seriously. We want to have something that's credible yeah. and that we can, where, you know, students feel safe. In regards to the school, you know, they've got a policy on equality and diversity, which covers everything. I feel like they need to have specialised policies, I think, that give more details because... Yeah. You know, I mean, even just even with sexual assault and harassment, I mean, stalking, just to give you an example, stalking's been a massive issue nationwide. You know, you've got Paladin, which is a national charity that started up in like, I I think like 2011, 2012, which is good. It reflects actually that stalking is becoming an issue. Mm -hmm. However, one of the issues is that it's considered a form of harassment there's all these technicalities basically but what what the government doesn't realize is stalking can lead to violence sexual violence murder my point sorry the point I was using you know stalking as as an example is that there needs to be further detail you know you need to give some more further clarity on certain 
incidents in harassment and assault rather than something generic. And I think perhaps, I don't know, maybe maybe some guidelines on what, what students can do. I mean, it's really nerve-wracking when you have a traumatic experience. Perhaps, you know, I think a lot of students need sort of clear, concise answers, options that they can just read through and be like, okay, this is what the school could do if I wanted to go down this route, rather than being sort of all confused and what's going on, I don't know. I mean, which is what the feel I get at the moment. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to share, initiatives you want to signpost or? Yeah, I just think, you know, if there are any students who are facing, even if they're having difficulties, they can't pinpoint what the difficulties are. If they're just feeling emotionally drained, anything, come and speak to me. You know, I'm I'm sort of separate from the school. I don't have any sort of connections to the departments, anything like that. So whatever students say to me will not go back to them. I know a lot of students feel nervous about that. You know, that maybe they're academics or supervisors, whatever might be informed. But, you know, like I said, we have a strict confidentiality policy. And, you know, you know, university life can be really tough. It's a big change for a lot of students. You're leaving home, you know, sort of becoming independent, balancing all these emotions, getting into relationships, love, loss, life. I mean, all this stuff. And I think it's okay to come and speak to someone if you're feeling overwhelmed. I think people say this a lot, but like, don't wait until it gets to breaking point to like reach out. Absolutely. I think some people feel like, oh, it's not that bad. I don't like... They yeah. even deserve help and then it and, just gets so much yeah, worse. Yeah, and, you know, everyone deserves compassion. Yeah. That's, that's what I think. Everyone deserves compassion. And I think it's important to, you know, self-care. This is where self-care comes in. It's just a really practical note. Where are you based in the SU so yeah. people can come find you if <laughs> so, they listen yeah. to this and want sure. to talk? Yeah, so I'm in G7, which is on the ground floor of the main building. So it's one of the offices just before the JCR. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It Thank was actually very really welcome. interesting and I found out a lot. Obviously, sexual violence isn't just an issue exclusive to university of campus. In fact, it can be harder if you're outside of a community environment like university to find support you need or even find someone to share your experience with. Cities are far more likely to have specialist survivor services. Nevertheless, helplines can also offer privacy and believe so crucial for survivors. Here is a list of support available both inside and outside London. We will also publish these along with the show so you can refer back to them. More advice, helplines, and guidance can be found at thesurvivorstrust.org. Personally, if you have time, I'd like to recommend Salty World's article, The Spectrum of Consent. Um, It'll be linked to this podcast, so go check it out because I think it gives more of a nuanced view of consent and that it isn't just black and white. And in fact, everything in between matters. You can find the link in the show notes to make sure to go check it out. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope that you feel like there's lots of help and resources out there available to you and if if and when you need it. We'd love to hear from you and what you have to say about the show. What would you like to hear more about and who would you like us to interview? Use the Google form in the show notes to give us your feedback. This can be given anonymously. To find out more about this project and recent updates, follow us at SOAS Radio and on SOASradio.org. Thank you for listening and have a good day.